Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. My name is Art and welcome to the start of Season 4. And we are beginning together that long countdown to Christmas 2023. I hope that you will be here with me throughout this new year. I've been really excited about getting this new season started. I had plans to start this a couple weeks sooner than it is, but for the sake of my own personal health, I had to kind of ease into it this year. Because I'm 44 years old, bending over can hurt, and I did something to my back. I don't even know what it was or how I did it. I had some pretty bad back pain to start the new year with, but that's on its way out, and I'm more clear-headed and ready to go and ready to start this new year with a wonderful Christmas story for you. On today's episode, I have some book club news, and then uh, we'll begin our story. And this story will take probably about two months to get through. Uh, I'm thinking I will divide each chapter up into two parts, and so that should take about eight weeks. But I'll talk more about that in a minute. First of all, let's check out the mailbag. Um, hmm. Well, it seems like my mailbag is empty. <laughs> so I'd love for you to send in letters, your thoughts, questions, anything you want to talk about on the podcast. Uh, just send that along to me at CozyChristmasPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you this year. Tell me how your Christmas of 2022 went. I'd love to hear what you did with family or friends. And uh, I'll read that on the podcast. So make sure you get those uh, into me. Otherwise, uh, the mailmen are just going to be standing around with nothing to do. All right, as promised, there is some more book club news. The Cozy Christmas Book Club will begin in February. Uh, and so the first thing I want you to do if you want to be a part of this book club is to send me an email at CozyChristmasPodcast at gmail.com and let me know. I'll send you some information. Next, I will be, probably within the next week or so, I'll be creating a Facebook group page where we can hang out and post stuff and have our online discussion over the books. I, I can give you uh, any news or information that way. Also through your email, I'll do that. I will uh, send out an invite. If you have sent me your email, be on the lookout. I will send you an invite so you can know where to get to that Facebook page. And then get ready to vote because very soon, probably towards the end of January, uh, we will I will have a poll out for us to, to choose our first book club choice for uh, February and March. I've collected a lot of book titles from some of you have suggested some. I've added my own suggestions into the pot and I will be picking three books for us to choose from uh, and to vote on. Uh, the number one choice, of course, will be the one we read for uh, February and March. The second highest will be kept on the poll for the next month, uh, April and May poll. And then uh, the third place one will be tossed back into the pot uh, to, be, to perhaps be chosen for another month. So stay tuned. Uh, keep an eye out on Facebook and my social media accounts uh, as we'll have some more news coming. I am really looking forward to doing this, uh, and I want to thank uh, all of you who have emailed me to sign up for, uh, for the book club. I've got a, a handful of you 
saying that you are wanting and interested to be a part of this throughout this year. I'm hoping to design it to be, you know, low pressure, no, no stress. You know, if you make it great, if you can't, that's fine. I just want to have an excuse to talk with other Christmas fans about some of the great books about Christmas that are out there. For right now, I will be looking at novels or short story collections. Although I had a few few suggestions for just individual short stories or children's books. We might do that like one one month, do like a collection of, of children's shorts or something like that. So that might be an option if you were wondering, because yeah, I know one, one person suggested reading How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And, you know, that's a pretty short story to, be, to take a month to read and then a month to discuss and talk about and all that. So that might be fun to do kind of a, a children's book month or something. And we can all bring some of our favorite children's books and talk about them. Uh, that might be an option. So that's all the news I have for the book club. Again, if you haven't yet, send me an email at cozychristmaspodcast at gmail.com. If you have sent me an email or a direct message and I haven't responded to you yet, or if you just want to make sure I got you signed up, uh, go ahead and reach out to me again. I did have one, at least one email from a person that went right to my spam account uh, or my spam folder. So I'm, I'm very thankful that she's, she spoke up and said something uh, so I could, I could get that out of there and uh, get her signed up. That's the book club coming very soon. I can't wait. Our story today is a Christmas novella written by Charles Dickens, and it is called The Chimes. Now, the story actually takes place on New Year's Eve, and so I thought this would be a great um, story to start reading on New Year's, but, well, life being what it is, <laughs> here we are, middle of January. That's okay. Even though this book is called a Christmas book or a Christmas novella, it takes place on New Year's Eve. Uh, the Chimes was Dickens's follow-up to A Christmas Carol and was published at Christmas time in 1844, so uh, just a year after A Christmas Carol. The Carol was so popular that people demanded more, and uh, so over the next four or five years or so, uh, Dickens continued to write a Christmas novella until he, he, I think he just got burned out on it and, and switched to publishing sh short story collections and different things like that at Christmas time and inviting other authors to help him add to to some great Christmas literature. Now a lot of those stories are not Christmassy like a Christmas Carol. The Victorians at the time loved telling ghost stories at Christmas time. So the full title of this story is called The Chimes, a goblin story of some bells that rang an old year out in a new year in. There will be some similarities to a Christmas Carol but it really stands on its own as its own story. According to Wikipedia, on New Year's Eve, Toby, also called Trotty, a poor elderly ticket porter or casual messenger, is filled with gloom at the reports of crime and immorality in the newspapers and wonders whether the working classes are simply wicked by nature. His daughter Meg and her longtime fiancé Richard arrive and announce their decision to marry the next day. Trotty hides his misgivings, but their happiness is dispelled by an, an encounter with the pompous Alderman Cute, 
plus a political economist and a young gentleman with, a, with nostalgia, all of whom make Trotty, Meg, and Richard feel they hardly have a right to exist, let alone marry. And then uh, throughout the course of the story, Trotty will have some more run-ins with people that will further his discouragement, and he's left feeling as if maybe he and his working class are worthless and should just die out. All of this leads to a mysterious late-night encounter in the bell tower, an encounter that will change his life forever. Uh, the book was very well received, although it wasn't without its naysayers. I mean, anytime you try to upset the status quo and call out people for their wrongs, that's, you know, going to happen. Uh, but the sales were very good. And if I remember right, um, this book actually sold more than A Christmas Carol did for a while. And it was more popular than A Christmas Carol was for at least a short time. Uh, the Carol has definitely had endured over time. And I, I think The Carol is a superior Christmas novella of all of Dickens's stories. You, you know, there's no question about that. But I think his other stories are worth looking at because, as always, he is wanting to be the champion of the poor and bringing light to the plight of those who are suffering. And this story does that. Uh, the story definitely connects to the poor. Uh, those who were in Toby's position, it really... You might say that the, the chimes resonated with them. You could say the chimes struck a real chord. All right, sorry. According to Wikipedia, five different stage productions of the book were running within weeks of publication. Uh, I believe those were um, unauthorized uh, productions. The copyright laws back then were, were non-existent. And uh, nearly 20,000 copies were sold in the first three months. It had a high media profile and was widely reviewed and discussed. Critical opinion was divided. Those sympathetic to its social and political message liked the book, but others thought it dangerously radical. The Northern Star reviewer called Dickens the champion of the poor. John Bull rejected his unflattering caricatures of philanthropy. It was certainly a financial success for Dickens and remained popular for many years, although in the long term, its fame was eclipsed by that of A Christmas Carol. And I've been seeing more and more productions of the chimes occurring, um, especially in like stage plays, things like that. And, and I'm, I'm glad because I think the story is, is dark, but it carries a very powerful punch to it. And so some of the themes of the book, I will wait to talk about more as the story unfolds because I don't want to give in any spoilers if you haven't read it. Although this is a Dickens Christmas story, I don't think it's anywhere near as cozy as A Christmas Carol is. And in fact, you know, just to kind of give you a heads up, it, there's a few parts that get pretty dark. And I was a little worried about the story might be maybe too dark for my podcast. You know, I like to keep things cozy and light, but I, I think it'll be a good read for January and February. Um, you know, it's a pretty bleak time of the year, I guess. So why not just revel in it? But this story is is a great one to read. It, it's spooky at times and it's heartbreaking at times. But hang on for the ending, okay? Dickens has a purpose in this and it's not all bleak. All right, that's all I'll say about the story for now. So with that, I want to invite you to sit down, 
next to the Christmas fire or the New Year's fire, I guess. And I will read to you the chimes, a goblin story of some bells that rang an old year out in a new year in by Charles Dickens. Chapter One, First Quarter, Part One. There are not many people, and as it is desirable that a storyteller and a story reader should establish a mutual understanding as soon as possible, I beg it to be noticed that I confine this observation neither to young people nor to little people, but extend it to all conditions of people, little and big, young and old, yet growing up, or already growing down again. There are not, I say, many people who would care to sleep in a church. <laughs> I don't mean it at sermon time in warm weather, when the thing has actually been done once or twice, but in the night and alone. A great multitude of persons will be violently astonished, I know, by this position in the broad, bold day, but it applies tonight. It must be argued by night, and I will undertake to maintain it successfully on any gusty winter's night appointed for the purpose. With any one opponent chosen from the rest, who will meet me singly in an old churchyard, before an old church door, and will previously empower me to lock him in, if needful, to his satisfaction, until morning. For the night wind has a dismal trick of wandering round and round a building of that sort, and moaning as it goes and of trying, with its unseen hand, the windows and the doors, and seeking out some crevices by which to enter. And when it has got in, as not finding what it seeks, whatever that may be, it wails and howls to issue forth again, and not content with stalking through the aisles, and gliding round and round the pillars, and tempting the deep organ, soars up to the roof, and strives to rend the rafters, then flings itself despairingly upon the stones below, and passes muttering into the vaults. Anon it comes up stealthily and creeps along the walls, seeming to read, in whispers, the inscriptions sacred to the dead. At some of these it breaks out shrilly, as with laughter, and at others moans and cries as if it were lamenting. It has a ghostly sound, too, lingering within the altar, where it seems to chant in its wild way of wrong and murder done, and false gods worshipped, in defiance of the tables of the law, which look so fair and smooth, but are so flawed and broken. Oh, heaven preserve us, sitting snugly round the fire. It has an awful voice, that wind at midnight, singing in a church. But high up in the steeple, there the foul blast roars and whistles, high up in the steeple, where it is free to come and go through many an airy arch and loophole, and to twist and twine itself about the giddy stair, and twirl the groaning weathercock, and make the very tower shake and shiver. High up in the steeple, where the belfry is, and iron rails are ragged with rust, and sheets of lead and copper shriveled by the changing weather, crackle and heave beneath the unaccustomed tread and birds stuff shabby nests into corners of old oaken joists and beams, and dust grows old and gray, and speckled spiders, indolent and fat with long security, swing idly to and fro in the vibration of the bells, 
and never loose their hold upon their thread-spun castles in the air, or climb up sailor-like in quick alarm, or drop upon the ground and ply a score of nimble legs to save one life. High up in the steeple of an old church, far above the light and murmur of the town, and far below the flying clouds that shadow it, is the wild and dreary place at night. And high up in the steeple of an old church dwelt the chimes I tell of. They were old chimes, trust me. Centuries ago, these bells had been baptized by bishops. So many centuries ago that the register of their baptism was lost long, long before the memory of man, and no one knew their names. They had their godfathers and godmothers, these bells. For my own part, by the way, I would rather incur the responsibility of being godfather to a bell than a boy, and had their silver mugs, no doubt, besides. But time had mowed down their sponsors, and Henry the Eighth had melted down their mugs, and they now hung nameless and mugless in the church tower. Not speechless, though. Far from it. They had clear, loud, lusty-sounding voices, had these bells, and far and wide they might be heard upon the wind. Much too sturdy chimes were they to be dependent on the pleasure of the wind. Moreover, for, fighting gallantly against it when it took an adverse whim, they would pour their cheerful notes into a listening ear, right royally, and bent on being heard on stormy nights by some poor mother watching a sick child, or some lone wife whose husband was at sea, they had been sometimes known to beat a blustering nor'wester, aye, all to fits, as Toby Veck said. For though they chose to call him Trotty Veck, his name was Toby, and nobody could make it anything else either, except Tobias, without a special act of Parliament, he having been as lawfully christened in his day as the bells had been in theirs, though with not quite so much of solemnity or public rejoicing. For my part, I confess myself of Toby Veck's belief, for I am sure he had opportunities enough of forming a correct one. And whatever Toby Veck said, I say, and I take my stand by Toby Veck, although he did stand all day long, in weary work it was, just outside the church door. In fact, he was a ticket porter, Toby Veck, and waited there for jobs. And a breezy, goose-skinned, blue-nosed, red-eyed, stony-toed, tooth-chattering place it was to wait in, in the wintertime, as Toby Veck well knew. The wind came tearing round the corner, especially the east wind, as if it had sallied forth express from the confines of the earth to have a blow at Toby, and oftentimes it seemed to come upon him sooner than it had expected, for bouncing round the corner and passing Toby, it would suddenly wheel round again as if it cried, Why, here he is! Incontinently, his little white apron would be caught up over his head like a naughty boy's garments and his feeble little cane would be seen to wrestle and struggle unavailingly in his hand, and his legs would undergo tremendous agitation, and Toby himself all aslant, and facing now in this direction, now in that, would be so banged and buffeted and tousled and worried and hustled and lifted off his feet as to render it a state of things but one degree removed from a positive miracle, that he wasn't carried up bodily into the air as a colony of frogs or snails or other very portable creatures sometimes are, and rained down again, to the great astonishment of the natives, on some strange corner of the world where ticket porters are unknown. But windy weather, in spite of its using him so roughly, was, after all, a sort of holiday for Toby. That's the fact. 
He didn't seem to wait so long for a sixpence in the wind, as at other times. The having to fight with that boisterous element took off his attention, and quite freshened him up, when he was getting hungry and low-spirited. A hard frost, too, or a fall of snow, was an event, and it seemed to do him good, somehow or other. It would have been hard to say, in what respect, though, Toby? So wind and frost and snow, and perhaps a good stiff storm of hail, were Toby Vick's red-letter days. Wet weather was the worst, the cold, damp, clammy wet that wrapped him up like a moist green coat, the only kind of great coat Toby owned or could have added to his comfort by dispensing with. Wet days, when the rain came slowly, thickly, obstinately down, when the street's throat, like his own, was choked with mist, when smoking umbrellas passed and repassed, spinning round and round like so many teetotums, as they knocked against each other on the crowded footway, throwing off a little whirlpool of uncomfortable sprinklings, when gutters brawled and water spouts were full and noisy, when the wet from the projecting stones and ledges of the church fell drip, drip, drip on Toby, making the wisp of straw on which he stood mere mud in no time. Those were the days that tried him. Then indeed, you might see Toby looking anxiously out from his shelter in an angle of the church wall. Such a meager shelter that in summertime it never cast a shadow thicker than a good-sized walking stick upon the sunny pavement with a disconsolate and lengthened face. But coming out a minute afterwards to warm himself by exercise and trotting up and down some dozen times, he would brighten even then and go back more brightly to his niche. They called him Trotty from his pace, which meant speed if it didn't make it. He could have walked faster, perhaps, most likely, but rob him of his trot and Toby would have taken to his bed and died. It bespattered him with mud and dirty weather. It cost him a world of trouble. He could have walked with infinitely greater ease, but that was one reason for his clinging to it so tenaciously. A weak, small, spare old man, he was a very Hercules, this Toby, in his good intentions. He loved to earn his money. He delighted to believe. Toby was very poor and couldn't well afford to part with a delight that he was worth his salt. With a shilling or an eighteen-penny message or small parcel in hand, his courage, always high, rose higher. As he trotted on, he would call out to fast postmen ahead of him to get out of the way, devoutly believing that in the natural course of things he must inevitably overtake and run them down. And he had perfect faith, not often tested, in his being able to carry anything that man could lift. Thus, even when he came out of his nook to warm himself on a wet day, Toby trotted, making, with his leaky shoes, a crooked line of slushy footprints in the mire, and blowing on his chilly hands and rubbing them against each other, poorly defended from the searching cold by threadbare mufflers of grey worsted, with a private apartment only for the thumb, and a common room or tap for the rest of the fingers. Toby, with his knees bent and his cane beneath his arm, still trotted, falling out into the road to look up at the belfry when the chimes resounded. Toby trotted still. He made this last excursion several times a day, for they were company to him, and when he heard their voices, he had an interest in glancing at their lodging place and thinking how they were moved and what hammers beat upon them. Perhaps he was more curious about these bells because there were points of resemblance between themselves and him. They hung there in all weathers, with the wind and rain driving in upon them, 
facing only the outsides of all those houses, never getting any nearer to the blazing fires that gleamed and shone upon the windows or came puffing out of the chimney tops, and incapable of participation in any of the good things that were constantly being handed through the street doors and the area railings to prodigious cooks. Faces came and went at many windows, sometimes pretty faces, youthful faces, pleasant faces, sometimes the reverse. But Toby knew no more, though he often speculated on these trifles standing idle in the streets, whence they came, or where they went, or whether, when the lips moved, one kind word was said of him in all the air than did the chimes themselves. Toby was not a casuist, that he knew of at least, and I don't mean to say that he began to take to the bells and to knit up his first rough acquaintance with them into something of a closer and more delicate woof. He passed through these considerations one by one, or held any formal review or great field day in his thoughts. But what I mean to say, and, and do say, is that as the functions of Toby's body, his digestive organs, for example, did of their own cunning, and by a great many operations of which he was altogether ignorant, and the knowledge of which would have astonished him very much, arrive at a certain end. So his mental faculties, without his privity or concurrence, set all these wheels and springs in motion with a thousand others, when they worked to bring about his liking for the bells. And though I had said his love, I would not have recalled the word, though it would scarcely have expressed his complicated feeling. For, being but a simple man, he invested them with a strange and solemn character. They were so mysterious, often heard and never seen, so high up, so far off, so full of such a deep, strong melody, that he regarded them with a species of awe. And sometimes, when he looked up at the dark, arched windows in the tower, he half expected to be beckoned to by something which was not a bell, and yet was what he had heard so often sounding in the chimes. For all this, Toby scouted with indignation a certain flying rumor that the chimes were haunted, as implying the possibility of their being connected with any evil thing. In short, they were very often in his ears, and very often in his thoughts, but always in his good opinion. And he very often got such a crick in his neck by staring with his mouth wide open at the steeple where they hung, that he was fain to take an extra trot or two afterwards to cure it. The very thing he was in the act of doing one cold day, when the last drowsy sound of twelve o'clock just struck, was humming like a melodious monster of a bee, and not by any means a busy bee, all through the steeple. Dinner time, eh? said Toby, trotting up and down before the church. Ah! Toby's nose was very red, and his eyelids were very red, and he winked very much, and his shoulders were very near his ears, and his legs were very stiff and altogether he was evidently a long way upon the frosty side of cool. Dinner time, eh? repeated Toby, using his right-hand muffler like an infantine boxing glove and punishing his chest for being cold. Ah! He took a silent trot after that, for a minute or two. There's nothing, said Toby, breaking forth afresh, but here he stopped short in his trot, and with a face of great interest and some alarm, felt his nose carefully all the way up. It was but a little way, not being much of a nose, and he had soon finished. Oh, I thought it was gone, said Toby, trotting off again. It's all right, however. I am sure I couldn't blame it if it was to go. 
It was a precious hard service of it in the bitter weather, and precious little to look forward to. For I don't take snuff myself. It's a good deal tried, poor creature, at the best of times, for when it does get hold of a pleasant whiff, or so, which ain't too often, it's generally from somebody else's dinner, a coming home from the baker's. The reflection reminded him of that other reflection, which he had left unfinished. There's nothing, said Toby, more regular in its coming round than dinner time, and nothing less regular in its coming round than dinner. That's the great difference between them. It took me a long time to find it out. I wonder whether it would be worth any gentleman's while now to buy that observation for the papers or the parliament. Toby was only joking, for he gravely shook his head in self-depreciation. Why, Lord, said Toby, the papers is full of observations as it is, and so is the parliament. Here's last week's paper now, taking a very dirty one from his pocket and holding it from him at arm's length, full of observations. I like to know the news as well as any man, said Toby, slowly, folding it a little smaller and putting it in his pocket again. But it almost goes against the grain with me to read a paper now. It frightens me almost. I don't know what we poor people are coming to. Lord, send we may be coming to something better in the new year, nigh upon us. Why, father, father, said a pleasant voice hard by. But Toby, not hearing it, continued to trot backwards and forwards, musing as he went and talking to himself. Ah, it seems as if we can't go right, or do right, or be righted, said Toby. I hadn't much schooling myself when I was young, and I can't make out whether we have any business on the face of the earth or not. Sometimes I think we must have, a little, and sometimes I think we must be intruding. I get so puzzled sometimes that I am not even able to make up my mind whether there is any good at all in us or whether we are born bad. We seem to be dreadful things. We seem to give a deal of trouble. We are always being complained of and guarded against. One way or other, we fill the papers. Talk of a new year, said Toby mournfully. I can bear up as well as another man at most times, better than a good many, for I am as strong as a lion, and all men ain't. But supposing it should really be that we have no right to a new year, supposing we really are intruding. Why, father, father, said the pleasant voice again. Toby heard it this time, started, stopped, and shortening his sight, which had been directed a long way off, as seeking the enlightenment in the very heart of the approaching year, which had been directed a long way off, found himself face to face with his own child, and looking close into her eyes. Bright eyes they were, eyes that would bear a world of looking in, before their depth was fathomed, dark eyes that reflected back the eyes which searched them, not flashingly or at the owner's will, but with a clear, calm, honest, patient radiance, claiming kindred with that light which heaven called into being, eyes that were beautiful and true, and beaming with hope, with hope so young and fresh, with hope so buoyant and vigorous and bright, despite the twenty years of work and poverty in which they had looked, that they became a voice to Trotty Vec and said, I think we have some business here, a little. Trotty kissed the lips belonging to the eyes and squeezed the blooming face between his hands. Why, pet, said Trotty, what's to do? I didn't expect you today, Meg. Neither did I expect to come, father, cried the girl, nodding her head and smiling as she spoke. But here I am, and not alone, not alone. Why, you don't mean to say, observed Trotty, looking curiously at a covered basket which she carried in her hand, that you... Smell it, father dear, said Meg, only smell it. 
Trotty was going to lift up the cover at once in a great hurry when she gaily interposed her hand. No, 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 said Meg, with the glee of a child. Lengthen it out a little. Let me just lift up the corner, just the little tiny corner, you know, said Meg, suiting the action to the word with the utmost gentleness, and speaking very softly as if she were afraid of being overheard by something inside the basket. There, now, what's that? Toby took the shortest possible sniff at the edge of the basket and cried out in a rapture. Why, it's hot! It's burning hot, cried Meg. Ha 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 ha, roared Toby with a sort of kick. It's scalding hot! But what is it, father? said Meg. Come, you haven't guessed what it is, and you must guess what it is. I can't think of taking it out till you guess what it is. Don't be in such a hurry. Wait a minute. A little bit more of the cover... Now guess. Meg was in a perfect fright lest he should guess right too soon, shrinking away as she held the basket towards him, curling up her pretty shoulders, stopping her ear with her hand as if by so doing she could keep the right word out of Toby's lips and laughing softly the whole time. Meanwhile, Toby, putting a hand on each knee, bent down his nose to the basket and took a long inspiration at the lid the grin upon his withered face expanding in the process as if he were inhaling laughing gas. Ah, oh, it's very nice, said Toby. It ain't, I suppose it ain't Polonese. No, 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 cried Meg, delighted. Nothing like Polonese. No, said Toby, after another sniff. It's, mm, it's mellower than Polonese. It's very nice. It improves every moment. It's too decided for trotters, ain't it? Meg was in ecstasy. He could not have gone wider of the mark than Trotters, except Polonese. Liver, said Toby, communing with himself. No, there's a mildness about it that don't answer to liver. Uh, petty toes? No, it ain't faint enough for petty toes. It wants the stringiness of cock's heads. And I know it ain't sausages. I'll tell you what it is. It's chitterlings. No, it ain't, cried Meg in a burst of delight. No, it ain't. Why, what am I a-thinking of, said Toby, suddenly recovering a position as near the perpendicular as it was possible for him to assume. I shall forget my own name next. It's Tripe. Tripe it was. And Meg, in high joy, protested he should say, in half a minute more, it was the best tripe ever stewed. And so, said Meg, busying herself exultingly with the basket, I'll lay the cloth at once, father for I have brought the tripe in a basin and tied the basin up in a pocket handkerchief. And if I like to be proud for once and spread that for a cloth, then call it a cloth. There's no law to prevent me, is there, father? Not that I know of, my dear, said Toby, but they're always a bringing up some new law or other. And according to what I was reading you in the paper the other day, father, what the judge said, you know, we poor people are supposed to know them all. <laughs> what a mistake. My goodness me, how clever they think us. Yes, my dear, cried Trotty, and they'd be very fond of any one of us that didn't know em all. He'd grow fat upon the work he'd get, that man, and be popular with the gentlefolks in his neighborhood, very much so. He'd eat his dinner with an appetite, whoever he was, if it smelt like this, said Meg cheerfully. Make haste, for there's a hot potato besides, and half a pint of fresh-drawn beer in a bottle. Where will you dine, father? On the post or on the steps? Dear, dear, how grand we are. Two places to choose from. Oh, the steps today, my pet, said Trotty. Steps in dry weather, post in wet. There's a greater conveniency in the steps at all times, 
because of the sitting down, but they're rheumatic in the damp. Then here, said Meg, clapping her hands after a moment's bustle, here it is already, and beautiful it looks. Come, father, come. Since his discovery of the contents of the basket, Trotty had been standing, looking at her, and he had been speaking, too, in an abstracted manner, which showed that though she was the object of his thoughts and eyes, to the exclusion even of tripe, he neither saw nor thought about her as she was at that moment, but had before him some imaginary rough sketch or drama of her future life. Roused now by her cheerful summons, he shook off a melancholy shake of the head, which was just coming upon him, and trotted to her side. As he was stooping to sit down, the chimes rang. Amen, said Trotty, pulling off his hat and looking up towards them. Amen to the bells, father? They broke in like a grace, my dear, said Trotty, taking his seat. They'd say a good one, I am sure, if they could. Many's the kind thing they say to me. The bells do, father, laughed Meg, as she set the basin and a knife and fork beside him. Well, seem to me, my pet, said Trotty, falling to with great vigor. And where's the difference? If I hear em, what does it matter whether they speak it or not? Why, bless you, my dear, said Toby, pointing at the tower with his fork and becoming more animated under the influence of dinner. How often have I heard them bells say, Toby Veck, Toby Veck, keep a good heart, Toby. Toby Veck, Toby Veck, keep a good heart, Toby. A million times more. Well, I never, cried Meg. She had, though, over and over again, for it was Toby's constant topic. When things is very bad, said Trotty, very bad indeed, I mean, almost at the worst, then it's Toby Veck, Toby Veck, job coming soon, Toby. Toby Veck, Toby Veck, job coming soon, Toby. That way. And it comes at last, father, said Meg with a touch of sadness in her pleasant voice. Always, answered the unconscious Toby, never fails. While this discourse was holding, Trotty made no pause in his attack upon the savory meat before him, but cut and ate and cut and drank and cut and chewed and dodged about from tripe to hot potato and from hot potato back again to tripe with an unctuous and unflagging relish. But happening now to look all around the street, in case anybody should be beckoning from any door or window for a porter, his eyes, in coming back again, encountered Meg, sitting opposite to him with her arms folded and only busy in watching his progress with a smile of happiness. Why, Lord, forgive me, said Trotty, dropping his knife and fork. My dove, Meg, why didn't you tell me what a beast I was? Father? Sitting here, said Trotty, in penitent explanation, cramming and stuffing and gorging myself, and you before me there, never so much as breaking your precious fast, not wanting to, when... But I have broken it, father, interposed her daughter, laughing. All to bits, I have had my dinner. Nonsense, said Trotty. Two dinners in one day? It ain't possible. You might as well tell me that two New Year's days will come together, or that I have had a gold head all my life and never changed it. I have had my dinner, father, for all that, said Meg, coming nearer to him. And if you'll go on with yours, I'll tell you how and where, and how your dinner came to be brought and something else besides. Toby still appeared incredulous, but she looked into his face with her clear eyes, and laying her hand upon his shoulder, motioned him to go on while the meat was hot. So Trotty took up his knife and fork again, and went to work. But much more slowly than before, and shaking his head, 
as if he were not at all pleased with himself. And that was the first part of chapter one of The Chimes by Charles Dickens. Now, I know we kind of left it hanging in the middle of a scene. I try not to make the episode quite so long. (laughs) And I thought that was a good place to stop. So we'll find out next week what it is that Meg has to tell her father. But here in the beginning, we get a really lengthy description uh, to open it that is classic Dickens. I mean, he could have said, you know, the story takes place on a windy day by the bell tower of an old church. But he he takes all that time to describe and personalize the wind and personify the bells that you're just caught up into it. And these objects become characters of the story itself. We get a few hints as to some of the further political issues that will be discussed in this book about the poor and that that those in charge are passing all of these laws against the poor and they're expecting the poor to know them all when probably many of them can't even read, let alone be aware of what's happening. You know, it, it just seems like they're putting them at a very unfair advantage. I like the part where Trotty so perfectly Dickens describes him as being so cold and shivering all over and just the description that went on there were, were really... Um, were really neat and and I laugh because you know he starts checking his nose to make sure it's still there because it's so cold he can't feel it anymore I love the simple pleasures that they have of having a dinner outside on the steps of the church where where Toby stands to wait for work you know basically he's like a messenger people will hire him to run messages and uh, packages and things all over town And uh, he does it in a way that's quick and that he trots whenever he walks. So that's where he gets his nickname, Trotty. They may not have a lot, but what they have brings them joy and they're able to enjoy it, you know, and and just the uh, teasing him about what she's bringing him for dinner and, and just the fun they have with that. You know, not to say that it's bad to have a lot, but when you don't have much, you, you have to find those simple joys. And I think in the end, it makes us more thankful for what we do have than if we just had everything handed to us. Well, not a whole lot I can add to the story at this point. I, I will have to keep reading before I can talk a little bit more about some of the messages that Dickens is wanting to bring out. Uh, but we'll, we'll kind of pick up on that next week. So keep an eye out for that. All right. Well, I will be back next week with part two and we'll find out what happens next and what message Meg had for her father. Also, you can check out the show notes and find some links to uh, our merchandise stores. And you can also make a donation on Kofi.com and I will send you a Christmas card and sticker or a bookmark. Uh, Just make sure to send me uh, your mailing address so I can get that to you. So until next time, remember to be kind and let us honor Christmas in our hearts and try to keep it all the year. Have a very Merry Christmas.